Well, good morning. We can get a little louder than that. Good morning. Okay, thank you. See, I do that with the kids back in the alley all the time to make sure they're awake and listening to me. We appreciate the fact that you decided to come and share your morning with us today. And if you haven't already figured out by Kathy's amazing choice of songs, we're going to be talking about grace today. And as a matter of fact, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. So we're continuing down that road of recovery that Robert has been taking us down. And so I have the opportunity to continue us as we go down our journey here just a little bit. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 this morning. And these are some of the probably most well-known and loved passages out of the New Testament. Uh, it just talks about the notion of grace and what that means to us and, and how amazing it truly is and how vital it is to us as a church and as Christians. And it's my hope and prayer, which was the same as Paul's, that this morning as we look at these passages, maybe we'll, we'll see it with a, a, maybe a new appreciation or we'll have a different uh, understanding of some of the words and what they mean to us. And along those lines, just a, a, a quick note, and I know that uh, I've been listening to Robert's messages online afterward, and uh, there's been a little, you know, every once in a while he'll have to relate, you know, uh, talk about what version of the Bible he's in or whatever. And so the passages you're going to see up here are going to be in the NLT, which is what he's been using, the New Living Translation. And just a note on that, I know when I prepare for a message, and I'm sure Robert does the same thing, is the fact that I just... I love to go and look at the different translations. Now, you want to make sure that, that what you're looking at is one that is true to Scripture, that it does not vary off of, of the truth of who Christ is or anything else. But there can be nuances in some of the words and some of the, uh, of the way that it's put out there just other than the NIV and different things. And so throughout today's message, I'll uh, be referring to some different passages uh, that, we, that we look at. And just to get the full sense of the nuances, I work with a young lady who went to Xavier and she studied the Greek language, just as an example. <laughs> and we were just in conversation and she was talking about the fact that in Greek, they have approximately 100 words for murder. Apparently, they really wanted to know how somebody died if, if somebody else killed them. So uh, it, there's, there's a lot to be said for looking at another language and bringing it into your own and understanding what that means to us. And so a lot of times, it's just the, the ability to get the, the full understanding, not that one's wrong and one's right or anything else. It just it paints a fuller picture sometimes of what it is that, that, that is being told to us in Scripture. And so there's a, a different versions I looked at in preparation. So it'll be up in the uh, NLT up here. I'm, I'm, I have the NIV in front of me, so we're, it's all good. It's the same message. Um, but with regard to the thing that we're looking at and what we're talking about. Okay? Um, so as we move forward, um, just, just kind of understand what we have of that. So uh, if you have your Bibles with you and you want to follow along, and I just realized my faux pas, I have my NIV Bible, and I told Shannon to put it up in the NLT, so what I'm reading will not match what's up there. So error number one for the day, thank you very much. Okay, so just thought I'd get that out of the way before somebody looked and said, that's not what he's saying. You're right, it is not. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Go ahead and read this. And then we'll ask for God's blessing on it. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Four, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Dear Lord, I pray that you would add understanding to the reading of your word this day as we study it in Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing that I want us to take a look at as we look here, so just at the end of, of what in our modern Bibles is chapter 1, because we realize these are all just letters that, we've been, that have been taken and translated for us, and that as these letters were being read, they weren't, they weren't stacked out in nice, neat chapters. They just kind of went on and on. And if, if you study this, Paul was the master, and I think I heard Robert say this too, he was the master of the run-on sentence, and he would just go. And so his letters would kind of wander and meander, and so we broke them out into chapters. So in what we have is the end of chapter 1, we, we talked about the power that God makes available to us in the person of Jesus Christ and through the sacrifice that he made. And he makes it clear, Paul does, how much he wants his audience, which includes us today, to understand what that power is and that it's available for us and that Christ is the head over all things and the church is his body. And so he's wanting us to understand as Christians where we belong in that relationship with Christ. And so as he finishes that thought and sort of moves on to the next one, as he sort of takes a breath and moves on to the next thought, the next paragraph, if you will, we move to chapter 2, Paul makes something of a, a rather startling shift in his tone. And we look at verses 1 through 3 again. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world, the NLT puts it. Okay? Paul is setting the stage and reminding us of one hugely important truth, and that is that grace is required. In order for us to be in a relationship with Christ, grace is a requirement. Because of where we were in our transgressions, we were separated from God, and it is grace that pulls us out. How many people lived in sin prior to grace coming along? Paul's very clear right now. I know Robert's done this. I'm not doing anything new. How many of us lived in sin, right? All of us. All of us were in sin. There is no exceptions here. Okay, Paul is making it clear, and he switches from in verse 1, from you and 3 to us, right? In order to include himself and all of us in this condition, this situation. It's not like Paul is saying, oh, you and you and you. He's saying, no, all of us lived in sin. This was our condition. This is where we were. This was the reality of our existence. 
in this declaration. And if we look at the language in verse 3 especially, so as the NLT puts it, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. In the NASB, it says, lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And as the NIV puts it, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Do you, do you sense the theme in, in this, this terminology? He's, he's using language here that we would often attribute to someone who has an issue with addiction. We are following the cravings. We are, we are following those those lustful passions that we have, and it's almost that there is this longing desire that we have to have it. And Paul is saying that that was where we were, that we were addicted to doing things that are contrary to God's will. That is, we were addicted to sin. And let's face it, as as humans, we like it. We wouldn't be doing it if we didn't. There is something attractive about that that we like. That living contrary to God's will for some reason in our minds is something that we want to do. And as a matter of fact, in the commentary I was reading, it it said this one little sentence and it just stuck with me. It said, sin causes a distortion of the mind. And isn't that what addiction does? It, It gets our priorities out of line with what they should be. It causes, oftentimes, there is actually a distortion that takes place. And and we shift our priorities and our focus away from where they should be onto those things that we just have this longing for and these cravings for that can often become destructive. And this is the language that Paul is using. And, and, And we don't want to kid ourselves. Paul makes it clear that these actions were voluntary. No one was dragging us kicking and screaming into these sinful actions at that time. If we, if, again, if we look at the language that Paul is using in the NIV, when you followed the ways of this world, in the, in the NLT, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. See, there's really not a room for excuse that the devil made us do it. Sometimes we want to do that. We want to fall back and say, well, it wasn't my fault. The devil made me do it. no. No, we were following. We, we were willingly trailing along, doing these things. See, when we get caught up in that kind of thought, it's a distortion of the truth about the reality of who God is and his relationship and with who Satan is and the power that he truly has over us. Now, there's a whole other sermon we could get into, and I promise I won't do that. Jamie starts looking at me very alarmingly at this point. Okay? But... The the only true power that Satan has over us is what we give him when we believe the lies that he tells us. Right? If If we go back even as early as the Garden of Eden, when he comes up next to Eve and there's the fruit, the forbidden fruit, right, that that they're not supposed to eat of, of this one tree in all of the garden, and Satan arrives. There's no force feeding going on here. He comes up and he starts whispering the lies, the half-truths, and the things that she wants to hear into her ear. She accepts them. Sin enters the world, and we go in a downward spiral from there. There There was no forcing of this action. She She willingly did it, and from that point forward, we have done the same thing. 
You see, John 8, tells us that the devil is the father of lies, and he uses the tool masterfully, and he will take a truth and maybe twist it a little bit and, and give us a half of it, or he'll just outright give us a deception. And the thing is, is we believe them. And the reason he's the father of lies is that he's already deceived himself into thinking that he has some way of winning this war. We want to See, the devil wants us in one of two places. He wants us to believe the, the lie that he is as powerful as God in some way, shape, or form. Or he wants us to believe that he doesn't exist at all and he's nothing more than this cute little cartoon character with horns and a pitchfork. And you can just ignore him and make believe he's not there. And either of these extremes is false and dangerous. Because the truth is, he does exist, he is real, he is our enemy, but he doesn't have near the power that, that folks want to attribute. There is no cosmic struggle where he and God are locked in combat and we're uncertain of the outcome. We already know who won. The end is written. God wins. Jesus already took care of that for us. There's no question about it. But see, Satan wants us to think there is. He wants us to believe that the outcome is uncertain in some way, shape, or form. It's a cliffhanger. Wait until you get to the final battle. It's already a done deal, people. Sorry. Spoiler alert. God wins. That's all there is to it. But along the way, Satan is going to wreak as much havoc as he can. And so it's through these cravings of our flesh, of our sinful nature, that he wants to take advantage of. And prior to grace, that's where we were. And the thing is, is that even after we accept the grace, even as Christians, Paul is telling us that we're still not immune to these temptations that come along. It's still there. They're still real. In Romans chapter 7... Paul writes this in chapter 7, verses 18, at the end of chapter 18 and 20, he said, I, in, in the NLT, or NIV, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. Now, there's something about that passage that has always reminded me of Bilbo Baggins' farewell speech in The Lord of the Rings, where he says, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve, because it's somewhere about the do's and the don'ts. But the point of it is this. What Paul is saying there is that even secured in Christ, I still have this inclination, there's this tendency, this temptation to do the things I know I'm not supposed to be doing. Have any of us been there? Every day, right? There's something that comes along that tells us, oh, shiny, I want to go do that. And it's like, no, you know you're not supposed to. And so there's this constant struggle at play with this in the sinful nature of man, the divine nature of God. It's the Holy Spirit. It's grace that allows us to win because Scripture is clear. It said there's no temptation that comes that we're not able to resist. But sometimes, folks, we just decide we're not going to. And so even as Christians, we have to be aware of where we came from. And this, I think, is why Paul wants to drive this point home to us. It's like, don't forget where you came from. We were all under wrath. It's where we were. It's the truth of it. And Paul, I get the sense that he doesn't want us to get this big head about thinking, oh, we're Christians, we've made it. We're all that in a bag of chips and we're set. He says, no, no. You were under wrath. You followed your sinful nature. He tells us in Romans, if we look at it, that it's still a possibility for us to do. There is security in Christ, absolutely. However, we have to be aware. 
Because as Christians, as the church, we should never, ever assume that we are any better than anyone else outside the walls of this building or anywhere else. The difference, my friends, is not that we're any better. It's the fact that we have received grace. And we've received God's love. That's the difference. It's not in us. It's what God has done for us. Pure and simple. We should never think we're better than anybody else. That is a lie. And that brings us to the next point about grace that I will bring up, and that it is grace is powerful. Oh, it's so powerful. And we have this tendency to downplay and undervalue the power that it has and that it brings. And in verses 4 through 7, we get a, a taste again of this. And we, we saw it at the end of chapter 1. And Paul makes it clear that when left to our own, we're doomed to follow those base cravings, those desires of ours. We, we're not going to do this on our own. We're not going to be able to pull ourselves by the bootstraps and somehow claw our way out of, the, out of that situation, out of that condition. The, the, the pit is too deep. It is too, it's too far along. We're not able to do it. But it's through the power of grace that we are saved and pulled out of it. It is God reaching down to us and pulling us out when we're not able to do it on our own. See, left to our own, we're, we're, we're going to follow those base desires and we're going to allow that distortion to, to remain and it's going to skew our perception away from God and what God wants. But the good news of the gospel is that God does not want us to stay in that condition or that situation. God is not some God sitting on a mountaintop hoping that something good happens. Oh, oh that, he figured it out. Yeah, good for him. Yeah. Oh, too bad. See, God doesn't sit up doing that. God is an active participant in our lives. He created us for the purpose of worshiping and bringing him glory. And he has inserted himself into our lives and into our existence. This is an active God who loves us. Not some impassive, inactive God sitting on a mountaintop somewhere. In verse 4, it says, But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And this echoes again from Romans 5.8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, even before we realized our need, even before we realized our situation and condition, God knew it, God understood it, God did something about it. God took the first step, and the second, and the third, and he keeps taking those steps day after day after day. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us that much. How much that he sent his only son to die on a cross for us. That is grace. And that is God's nature. It's the power. See, we, we do not have the power to overcome sin. At the end of verse 4, it said, It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. It's God's grace that saves us. not ourselves. We're not saving ourselves. It's God's grace that does it. And he's picking back up on this theme from the end of chapter 1 where he's talking about the power that, that God exerted. They made available to us through the work on the cross. Consider this next passage in 2, 
uh, chapter 2, verse 6. It says, For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with, with whom? With Jesus. Folks, we are united with Christ. The same power that raised Jesus has been given and used to raise us up out of that spiritual death. So we're seated in the heavenlies. Now we're, we're not talking, Paul isn't talking about some physical transportation. Scotty, beat me up. No, that's not what we're talking about. In the spiritual sense, Paul is saying that we have been lifted out of that, the depths of sin. And we are now seated with God in the heavenlies. Beside Christ, we are united with Jesus in this power that has been exerted here. This is the heart of Paul's message, that positionally we're now with Christ. Or if you want to think of it, that Christ is with us. He's living with us, beside us, in us. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We've got a spark of the divine in us. And we walk around like we don't even know. Folks, we have tapped into a power beyond imagining. Last week I heard Robert was talking about, he had the electric cord, right? As an example, you know, we, we have the electric cord, we plug it in, and we bring power into the house, we charge it. And, and, and he was using it as an example of bringing the power of God, of the Holy Spirit into our lives. And yet we limit ourselves to that little extension cord. And he talked about the fact that really the true power is, is the power that exists in those huge power lines out in the field out there that carries the electric from the generation plant out to the different places. Folks, that's the kind of power... If we are united with Christ, if that's the kind of power that we have available to us, what do you think happens when you grab hold of that? We should not be looking the same, I would dare say, that whatever hair you have on your head is going to stand straight up. If you don't have any, maybe some will grow. I don't know. But I can tell you, your condition will not be the same after you grab hold of it than it was before. Why do we keep living like we've not done that? Why do we just keep rolling along the same as if we've not tapped into that power? See, this is what Paul wants the readers to understand. You've been raised up with Christ. That there is a power available to you that surpasses anything that we can never imagine. I don't care if it's a nuclear power plant or whatever. Dilithium crystals, if you're a Star Trek fan, nothing compares to the power available through the grace of God and the Holy Spirit and with Christ living within us. God's provided those that accept his grace with the Holy Spirit, and this is where the power comes from. That's how we're connected and united with Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's not a casual relationship. That, that should change the way we look at everything if we grab hold of it like Paul wants us to. Our position in security in God is not about what we do, but about what Jesus has already done. You see, Paul's language here talks about the, the grace that saves. It was, it's not a one-and-done act it is something that took place with continuing results throughout all of eternity. 
So that act of the cross done then was not just for Paul and the readers of the early church. It was done for us. It's done for our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and anyone yet to come. That act of salvation and grace continues running until the day Jesus comes back. We have but to accept it. And that is where we go next. See, for Paul, this is an either-or proposition. Either you're living in sin or you're living in Christ. That's it. Your choices, A or B. Which is it going to be? You just have to accept what God is offering, and that's the next point of verses 8 and 9, and that is that grace is a gift. A gift freely offered. The only question is whether we're going to accept it. In verses 8 and 9, if we go through and read this again, and we know most of these passages, I would imagine. We know for most of us probably pretty close to knowing them by heart. Of course, it's on a page flip, right? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, Paul wants us to understand that that there's no question about where the power is coming from. We're we're not generating it on our own. God is providing it. It is a gift freely given to us. We need to accept it. How do we accept the gift? We, in the NLT, we, we believe. We believe. Or, as the NIV puts it here, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not our works that save us. It's not a reward for the good things we have done. And folks, we we, we should find this as amazing news, right? If we accept the reality that we were in a situation that was too dire, a pit too deep for us to get out of on our own, that there's no amount of good works that we could do to earn our way into heaven, then it should be amazing, great news that grace is being offered to us freely, that God will pull us out of that. Not only do we not have to worry about not being able to do enough good things, we can also rest assured that there's nothing bad enough that we could have ever done that would keep us from being able to receive that grace either. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care any of your history. God loves you, period. End of story. You can accept and receive grace. that's not fair. To whom? It's not fair in our sense of of right and wrong, but, but God's economy is not the same as ours. God says, you've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? We've all missed the mark. We all have grace available to us. We're the ones who tend to rank it and make it bad or, or not so bad or, or whatever, In God's mind, it's all a disobedience. We all receive grace. Timothy Jones relates a story in his book, Finding Freedom Through the Intoxicating Joy of Irresistible Grace. And in a nutshell, it's this. They adopted a a, a young girl that had been placed with a family. So this young lady, this young girl was with a family, and for whatever reason in that family... He says that they never were able to fully integrate her with their biological children. And so there was this sense of outsideness, if you will. 
And for one reason or another, whenever that family would go to Walt Disney in Florida, this child never got to go. She would stay with friends or other family members, but she never got to go to the Magic Kingdom. And so finally, that, the, they dissolved that relationship with the child. She went back into foster care, and Timothy Jones' family wound up adopting her into their own as, as, a, as a, one of their middle children, he says. And so as he heard the story about this child's never having a chance to go to Disney World, he decided that should circumstances present themselves, he wanted to make sure that she had a chance to go, take the whole family. And so it turns out that he had a speaking engagement. They were going to be able to go to the Florida area. And so he set up a, a time, announced it to the family, we're going to go to Disney. Ooh, we're going to Disney. He said in the, in the months and weeks leading up to it, this child started behaving atrociously. Lying when didn't have to, stealing food when simply asking for it would have been enough, and doing all different kinds of things that were disruptive and, and uh, just wrong, just flat out. And so finally, he says in the, in the story that he sets her down and says, you know, Why are you doing these things? And she never comes out and says it, but he says throughout the story, He says, I know what you're going to do. You're not going to take me to Disney because I'm being bad. And, and he says that in his, in his flesh, in, in his, in, you know, that he was tempted to say, well, you're, you're right. If you don't straighten up, then you won't get a chance to go. But he says, but I thank God that was not the answer I gave. He said instead, he said, he asked her, he said, are you a part of this family? He said, yes. Do we leave family behind? No. Then you're going to go with us. Now, you would hope that that was the end of it, right? Happy story, off we go. But unfortunately, no. She continued disruptive behavior, continued acting out. They made their trip, got there, said they even got worse as they were at the hotel, getting ready to go in through the kingdom doors and all this. And then they went and had their day at Disney. We know how that goes. And here's the part of the story that so struck me. It says, in our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted Pensive, a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, So how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. And after a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. That's what God offers us. It's not because we're good. It's because we're his. Because he loves us. And he wants to extend that grace to each and every one of us. So we can join him in the true kingdom of heaven. That is the power of grace. That's God's nature. Remember, we were subject to God's anger. That's what we're being saved from. You realize that, right? It's God's righteous wrath that we are being saved from. We're not being saved from hell or from the world. That's the consequence of the rebellion of not listening to God. We're being saved from God's wrath so that we can have a relationship with him. He does not want us to stay there. Like any 
good parent, I can imagine, you don't want to stay angry at your children, do you? You, you, you do that in order to help them understand a truth, to know that something is wrong or dangerous or not something they should be doing. But your desire in doing that is not to continuously punish, but for them to learn so you can build the relationship and be restored. That's what God wants. That's grace. He wants all of his children to know that joy. All we have to do is accept the gift, but this is where we get to the final point, is that we need to understand fully what grace means, and that it compare, compels, grace compels us to action. You see, a lot of times when we read this passage, we, we go through, we, we get to verses 8 and 9, we, we we discover the truth that we've just talked about. We say, hallelujah, we head for the doors and we go on living our lives the very same way that we were living them before. That is not the point. Everything I just said is true, 100% true. But see, the point is that we tend to make mistakes at that point and we fail to understand that there is a change, there is a transformation that takes place in the life of the believer when you accept that gift of grace. We're connected with whom again? Jesus, right? So if we are connected with him, if we are in Christ, do you not think, and Scripture tell us, that that means that we are to be reflecting Christ's nature? What did Jesus do when he was on this earth? If we go back and look, did we find him sitting on a rock with his legs folded, just giving out words of wisdom to people who wandered by? No. Jesus was constantly doing. Jesus was constantly teaching. Jesus was constantly healing. Jesus was constantly loving, being. He, he just was constantly doing things. So if we are a reflection of Christ when we are with him, do we not think that's what we are supposed to be doing as well, individually and as a church? And if we are not, what's wrong? It, the issue is not with God, I promise you. The issue is us. That we haven't fully understood the nature of this grace that God is offering. You see, it compels us to do the good works that God prepared in advance. Don't get it backwards. It's not the good works that save us. We can't do enough. We covered that already. But the grace that we accept, the grace that God offers, that power of the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we can go do the things that God has laid out for us to do. He knows that there is a world out there that still needs the message of grace and salvation. And if we're just sitting back and not doing anything about it, then we're not reflecting Christ's nature. That's not who Jesus was. It's not who Jesus is. It's not what we are supposed to be. This grace is more than can just be set aside. We are God's masterpiece in verse 10. He, was, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. 
We can refuse to accept the fact that God would simply offer us grace as a gift, no strings attached, okay? Too good to be true, so we struggle through life certain there's something more we have to do on our end in order to be earn that grace. That's not true. We know that. Or we water down what grace represents and what that positional transformation of being in Christ means, and we assume that simply saying, yep, I got you, God. You did some great work there. Thanks. It's not enough. That's not what was intended. And I don't know how we have read these scriptures and come away with that kind of understanding because it's not in here. It's not. We assume that mere belief is sufficient and we fail to acknowledge the responsibility that comes after salvation that reflects the nature of Christ in us. Louis B. Smeads wrote the following, being in Christ is not only the fundamental fact of the individual Christian's existence, it is the whole reality. For us, being in Christ is our reality. And if that is our reality, then we need to be doing what Christ was doing. We share his nature in this world. See, if we stop at mere belief, according to James, we've just made it to demon status. Congratulations. James 2.19, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Folks, if all you've done is given mental assent to the fact that God exists, and you, you believe that, according to James, you've just reached demon status, because they're smart enough to understand that fact. There is more to the life that God has in store for us than simply acknowledging that God exists. God did not create us and offer grace to us in order for us to sit on the sidelines and be spectators in this world. There's a quote from Sam Storms that Robert sent me this past week. It says, You weren't created for boredom or burnout or bondage to ambition, but for the incomparable pleasure and matchless joy that knowing Jesus alone can bring. Only then, in him, will you encounter the life-changing, thirst-quenching, soul-satisfying delight that God, for his glory, created you to experience. That's the kind of life that God wants for us. It's not about being forced to do the work. It's not, oh, I've got to do this again. We should be so excited by the fact that we've received the gift of grace that we can't wait to share that news with other people and to do the things that God has in store for us. Remember what he has saved us from. There, there should be an excitement in this. And folks, I can start right here in the walls of this church. Guys, it's, it's no secret. We're on this road of recovery. We need each other. Folks, we are not in a situation where we can afford to be spectators. If, if we want this congregation to survive, not to survive, to thrive, to move ahead, to grow, to be the light on a hill that God wants it to be, friends, we have got to be participating in Christ's plan. We cannot afford to be sitting and waiting to see what happens next. We have got to be active participants and what God has in store.
there are there are things that need to be done, and I totally understand. Everybody's situation is different. There are physical limitations. There are time constraints. I understand. I get it. But where you are gifted, use that gift. Where time allows, do something. Even if it is something as, in your mind, may seem as trivial as praying, then pray without ceasing. And let the folks know you're praying for them. But if you are able, if you do have the opportunity and ability to step up and do, then do. Whatever that is. God has created us to be participants in his plan. There is a world of people that are in the same spot that we were prior to accepting that gift of grace, right? So we come full circle to where we were at the beginning. That as for you, you were dead in your transgressions. Folks, they are still dead in those transgressions. There is a world of people around us that are still the walking dead. They're following those lustful desires, and they don't know yet. They have not accepted the gift of grace. As we take one last look, consider verse 7. It explains why God raised us up with Christ. He says, so God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. There is this notion here, this picture, that God is going to point and say, look, look at my greatness. Look at my love. And, and basically, we are to be an example of that. God says he should be able to point to us to be an example of his works, his love, his riches. And so I ask, if God were to lift up your life or the life of this church as an example of what the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness looks like, what would those future generations see? Or more to the point and possibly even more important, what would the world around us right now see? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, oh God, I pray that we, we understand what kind of grace that you have offered us. Father, that, that we realize that we need your grace, that we're not going to be able to do this on our own, that that's just a lie of Satan, that we need you, that we need this grace that you offer. And Father, that we acknowledge it is a gift, that, that we cannot earn it. There's nothing bad enough that would keep us from receiving it, that we understand its power, and Lord, that we understand what comes with it, the responsibilities that come with being one of your children. Lord, we don't have to do works to earn your favor, but that's not the point. We, as your children, are, have been designed to do your work. Father, help us understand and own that truth and to walk in your plan. Be with us as a church as we look at what it means to be on this road of recovery and to be yours. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This altar will be open if you want to come and pray.